All right, so we're kicking off a brand new uh, series today called 2020, just so happens it's the year 2020, but also um, we talk about that in terms of our vision, right? Seeing 2020, being able to see clearly. And so a uh, brand new series this morning. So I just want to ask you today, um, how many of you uh, had New Year's resolutions this year? W- wait, uh, don't put your hands up. N- nobody calls them resolutions anymore. That's stupid. It's old school. Nobody does that. Um, okay, so let me, let me start over. Um, how many of you set goals this year? Made plans this year? H- how many of you... Um, Decided to make a change that happened to coincide with flipping your calendar from 2019 to 2020. Anybody do that? Few of you? Um, okay. Most of us, I mean, I think just statistically, lots of people do. I think it's about 60% of people who make plans, who set goals for the new year. Um, it is drastically higher than that, the number of people who actually don't do anything in relation to those goals and, and plans. Um, but, uh, but, but a lot of us do, and, and a lot of us don't want to say anything about that because it's, it's become this thing like, we just know, I'm going to make goals, I'm going to make plans, and then nothing's going to happen, and they're not going to get anywhere, and I don't want to be embarrassed, and so we don't say anything about it. You know, I used to be critical of, um, of people who needed some kind of outside motivation to make changes or set goals or, or uh, make new plans, you know, um, Maybe it was uh, uh, something coming up. Um, maybe it was a date on the calendar, something that was coming up. And, and so they go, ooh, I got to get ready for that. And so that would motivate them. Or maybe they'd gone to the doctor and visit the doctor and there's something there. And, and that would motivate them to change. And I, I used to be critical of that in my younger, younger years. I'm like, why do you need some outside stimulation to make the changes that you know you should make anyway? And then as I got older, I, I realized, well, that's dumb. It's dumb of me to feel that way because whatever helps us take the next step, whatever helps us to change or motivates us to get to the next place, to do the next thing, whatever that is, it's a good thing. Change is good. And getting us to that next thing, to making that next right decision, it's a good thing. And so however you get there, I want to just encourage you to get there. I think there are really three major motivators of change in our lives. Three things, like just general. I'm not not talking like all the psychology stuff in this. I'm just talking about the normal, everyday person. I think there are three major motivators for change in our lives. And, And the first one's pretty simple. It's just a date on the calendar. Maybe there's a date coming up on your calendar, and, and that's going to motivate you to change something in your life. Maybe it's a birthday. Maybe it's a significant birthday. Anybody facing significant birthdays this year? I, I don't. I have a really boring, bad, horrible, terrible, awful birthday this year. I'll be 49. But next year, that's the big one. I mean, that's like, I'm old, right? Next year. I mean, they say that 50 is the new 20. I don't think I believe that based on how I feel right now. Um, but maybe there's a big like big birthday coming up in, in, in your life, and, and that's kind of motivating you to change. Maybe it's a, a, an anniversary, and then that's motivating you to change as you see that approaching. Um, maybe it's this one. Maybe you're going to celebrate one of those big um, graduation reunions this year, 2020. 
ooh, maybe you graduated in, like, man, 19, I read somewhere, I saw on Facebook, let's see, um, 1990 is the same distance behind us as 20, is it 50 is? That is crazy. Like 1990 was just yesterday. Like that's 10 year, you should be celebrating 10 years from graduation if you graduated in 1990. That's not true at all. It's a long ways away and that's a big one. But a date on the calendar that we look forward to can motivate us to change. Um, maybe that's a vacation and you're going to go someplace warm and you're like, that's coming up. And so I've got to get ready. I've got to diet. I've got to exercise. I've got to get ready for that um, vacation. I, I think another major motivator in our lives is a diagnosis. So you go to the doctor. Um, if you get to be my age and the doctor says you're like pre-diabetic, you've got to do something about that. Like that motivates you, right? I mean, that's a big change. And, and so you go to the doctor and the doctor says something and, and it and motivates you to change some things in your life. Maybe it, it's as simple as just a decision. You simply get tired of the way things have been and decide that a change is needed. I think in most of our lives, for most of us, most situations, those are like the three major motivators in our lives. But no matter what sparks your desire to change things up in your life, to make a change, to make a plan, to set a goal, here really is where the rubber meets the road. How you used to live must give way to how you choose to live. How you used to live must give way to how you choose to live. And if we're going to make any changes in our lives, if we're going to set any goals, if we're going to have any resolutions, we've got to get to this point where how we used to live isn't acceptable to us anymore, and we've got to begin making changes to how we choose to live. Every meaningful and long-lasting change in our life, none of them happen by accident. They happen by choice. So we have to make that choice to make those changes. Something has to spark the changes in our lives, and whatever that is, I think it's a good thing. Whatever it is that motivate us, motivates us to change is a good thing. And so maybe, maybe you use the purchase of a new calendar as motivation to spark some changes in your life in this new year. And maybe those changes or those goals, maybe there's a lot of them, and you've got a long list of things that you'd like to see change in your life, and, and, and you're looking forward to the end of 2020 and going, Let's, I'm going to feel better, I'm going to look better, I'm going to talk better, I'm going to think better, whatever your goals and, and things are. Maybe that list for you is short. And you're like, look, if I have a big list, I'm going to get to any of them, and so there's just a few things that I want to focus on today. I want to ask you this morning, whether your list is long or it's short, where is God in your vision of how you want the end of 2020 to look? Where's God in that picture, in those goals or those plans? And I think a lot of us just plan and we think primarily about just like everyday kind of things. And maybe it's real general. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better wife. Maybe your goal is I want to find a better job this year. Maybe like this year's the year I'm going to go to the Y. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to hit that diet, whatever. I think oftentimes we, we spend a lot of our time or most of our time dealing with the physical things in life. 
that we can change and forgetting about those spiritual things in our lives. But the new year is a great time to recommit yourself to following Jesus and to looking more like him in your day-to-day life. And so in this, our first message series of the new year, we're going to look at some ways to to change our thinking and our behavior in order to look more like Jesus in 2020. That means how we love God and love others, right? Because Jesus, that's really what he was about. That's what he did the best. He loved God and loved others. And when we look like Jesus, we're loving God well and we're loving others well. Like with every goal, plan, or change, there needs to be a recognition, though, of how things used to be in order to see more clearly how we choose to be. And so today, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. So that's New Testament. It's one of the letters that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote to the um, church in Ephesus, And uh, it really goes well with the things we're talking about, how we used to be versus how we choose to be. And I hope you'll see that play out as we read through these verses. Um, So like always, you could follow along here up on the screen. You could pull out your your phone, your mobile device, and you can go to the Bible app and you can take notes and stuff there. You can also go to reallifecc.us on your mobile device. You can click on the My Message Notes image. And uh, all the notes from this morning's message, all the scripture references uh, show up there. And in each of those little areas, you can um, click on uh, the little thing in the bottom uh, of each of those sections, and you can write your own notes. And at the end of the morning, if you've got some things written down, maybe God spoke to you in some way about something that was going on, um, you can click on that, you can save those, and then you can have those emailed to you at the end of the morning. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here's what Paul writes. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So Paul's saying, he says it right at the beginning, this is how you used to be. You were dead in your transgressions and and sins. This is how you used to live. This is the story for each and every person. This is our shared experience. Whether you grew up in in the church like, like I did, like mom and dad had you there the week after you were born, or whether you came to Christ maybe just as early as last year and you went through that process and, and made Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, this is our shared experience. This is our history. We were dead in our sin. Now, we weren't dead physically. Like, like we get that, right? We're not dead physically because the very next thing that he says is that, is that this is how we used to live. And we can't be alive and dead really at the same time. And so he's not talking about physical death. Paul is talking about spiritual death that eventually leads to eternal death. And so he's saying, look, this is how you used to live. You were spiritually 
dead because of your sins and transgressions. They separated you from God. They made you at odds with God. The way that the world lives is in um, opposition to the way God would live or God would have us live. You have the holy and you have the unholy. You have the righteous and you have the unrighteous. And these two things don't go together. And so Paul says, look, you used to be spiritually dead and you, you were alive physically, but this is where you were headed. Your life was headed to death, to separation from God. We know that because Paul also writes in Romans that we all have sinned, that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, God's perfect example in Jesus. We've all disobeyed. At some point in our life, we've blown it. We've made a mistake, and not just a mistake, we've done things on purpose that we knew God wouldn't be happy with. We made a decision to do something. And in the back of my, our mind, we're like, okay, I know God was not going to be happy with it. I know that this isn't the best for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's where the next part comes in. He says, look, we've all disobeyed. We've all gratified the cravings of our flesh, and we followed its desires and thoughts. We gratified the cravings of our flesh. Our flesh, which is our, our physical body, okay? And, and when the Bible talks about our flesh, it's talking about everything that is in opposition to God. So we're either controlled by the flesh, by the cravings of our physical life and the things that our body or mind desires, or we're led by the Spirit. And so God is kind of helping us live in a way that's contrary to our flesh. So these two things, flesh and spirit, are, are opposed to one another. And Paul says that our flesh has evil desires and evil thoughts. Things that, that maybe aren't in themselves evil can become evil when we indulge in them to gratify the cravings of the flesh that he mentions. Now, I think for, for most of us, um, we hear this gratifying the, the sinful um, cravings, the desires, the thoughts of the flesh, and maybe the first thing we think of is sexual kind of stuff. Well, that's flesh stuff, that's physical stuff, and we go kind of there. But it could also be things like food. Food's a craving, right? We crave food, sometimes physical, maybe it's just emotional, I got, this is why I'm, I'm eating. I've, I've got stress, I've got things going on, and so I crave this thing to alleviate how I'm feeling. In fact, most sin in our lives, are say, I would say as believers, probably most of the times we sin are in areas where like, we're just stressed out, we're, we're at the end of our rope, we're not sure what's going to happen, and so we've got to relieve that pressure, and we do that um, through a craving of the of the flesh through a desire or a thought and we allow ourselves to kind of think about that and walk in that because for a moment anyway excuse me it kind of releases some of that pressure that we're dealing with now of course after that then we feel guilty right there's guilt and there's shame for those things that we've done but that's how it works in our lives it could be a craving for attention or affection it could be a craving for power or money it's focused on ourselves or others. And so there's all kinds of things where we're gratifying the cravings of the flesh. We're following its desires or its thoughts. 
As Christians, it doesn't mean that as Christians we no longer struggle with cravings, okay? It's not what we're saying. That, that once you come to Christ or you come to Jesus, that you don't deal with that sin stuff anymore, that those cravings just go away. Like if you've been a believer every link, any time, uh, any length of time, you're like, no, those, those cravings don't go away, right? They don't. They're, they're there all the time. Our flesh is constantly trying to get us to gratify those cravings. Each of us, in our own ways, craves things of the flesh, physical things. We crave those things. But Paul seems to indicate that there's um, also this craving for um, thoughts, the things that we, that we think. So there's a difference here between having a craving of the flesh and then gratifying that craving by following it to either a physical or emotional end. So we can have, like, we can have cravings of the flesh without gratifying those things. And we gratify them when we spend time on them or we pursue them. And so Paul says, look, this is how we used to live. We gratified the cravings of our flesh, thoughts and desires. We acted them out physically. We thought about them for a long time. And, and those things are opposed to what God would have us. The flesh is opposed to the spirit. The reason both Christians and non-Christians have these cravings, thoughts, and desires, whether they're given into or not, is because of what he says last, that it is our nature. It's in our nature to want to gratify the cravings of the flesh. It's in our nature from the beginning. Adam and Eve set the course of our lives. Every human has struggled since because we keep defaulting back to following the world. So Paul's trying to set this baseline here, and he's saying, look, this is how you used to live. Every one of you on the planet at any given time, this is how, if you're a believer now, this is how you used to live. You gratified the sinful cravings. This is your nature. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. That's how it used to be. But look at the next few verses, verses 4 to 7. Paul writes this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, okay, he's talking about the future, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In every great spiritual story, there's a but God moment. Just like he starts out here, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. In every great spiritual story, there's a but God moment. The Israelites were trapped between the sea and the coming Egyptian army. So Pharaoh had amassed the entire Egyptian army. He called them out. They were in hot pursuit of the Israelites. The Israelites were standing on the shore of the sea. They had the Gulf of Aqaba to the east, and they had the Egyptian army coming. It looked like just a sandstorm coming as they raced across the sand to get to the Israelites. There was no way for them to survive, but God made a way through the water. Forty years later, the Israelites, a nation of brick builders, crossed the Jordan River and they were standing outside the city of Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city. It was one of the major fortified cities uh, of the day in the land of Canaan. And so it had large and thick 
stone walls all the way around the city. The people inside were trained and they had weapons of war. And outside of that wall stood the Israelites. Now there were lots of them, but they had um, like pitchforks and hoes. They, they had been in Egypt making bricks for 200 years. They were brick makers. They weren't soldiers. They didn't know how to wield a sword. They didn't know how to defend themselves. They didn't know how to plan attacks. They stood outside of Jericho with no hope of defeating the superior weapons with their pitchforks. But God made a way. And they marched around the city. And God called the walls of the city to fall out. And the Israelites went up over those walls. The Apostle Paul the guy who wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, he was murdered for talking about Jesus. But God made a way and brought him back to life so that he could write most of the New Testament. Jesus was killed on a cross by his own people for nothing more than their vanity and pride. But God made a way and saved the world through him. You and, and me, we were dead in our sins and transgressions, guilty for gratifying our flesh, and in our very nature, we were deserving wrath. But God, by his grace, made a way. Now, these four verses are all about our salvation from sin and death. These verses in, in Ephesians chapter 2, they're all about our salvation from sin and death. But if you noticed, we are not the focus in those four verses. And any one of those focus, we're like an afterthought, we're not the focus. Paul's focus here is exactly where it should be. If you go back and look at those verses, Paul's focus is on God first. And so let me just give you a, a count real quick. He says, God, who is rich in mercy, in verse 4. It was God who made us alive, in verse 5. It was God who raised us up, in verse 6. It was God who seated us where we didn't belong, I might add, in verse 6. And it was God in verse 7 that showed us kindness. All of these express God's incredible power and ability to make a way when there seems to be no way. Secondly, Paul's focus is on grace. And he says that grace saved us in verse 5. Remember that grace is receiving something you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving something you do deserve. We deserve to die. We don't receive that. That's mercy. But what we, um, we don't deserve is heaven and eternal life and salvation. And we're given that by grace. And so Paul says, look, there's this grace that saved us in verse 5. And in verse 7, grace is incomparable in its richness. Paul says that because you will never run out of grace. You will never find the limit of grace. You will never be able to earn grace. There's always more when it's needed. Thirdly, Paul focuses in these verses on Jesus, who we are with, though we shouldn't be, in verse 5. He says that we're with Jesus in verse 5. We're also, um, we were raised up with him, raised to the same level with him in verse 6. On, uh, it focuses on Jesus in, also in verse 6 when we're seated in the heavenly realms. I was thinking about this this week. Think about this, like, try to get a picture of this. 
we have God and we have Jesus. And we often look, if you're a believer and you've been in church for a while, you think about Jesus and, and the Bible says that he's going to stand at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That he has this special place in heaven along with God. And it's elevated, right? And, and so it's God and just a little bit lower than him is Jesus. And yet here in Ephesians it says, look, God, because of his grace, is going to raise us up to the level of Jesus, that he's going to sit us with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Like, we're going to be on the level with Jesus. That's incredible to think about. We're going to be on the same level with Jesus when we get to heaven. That's crazy. And, and Jesus then, in verse 7, he says, is the physical expression of God's kindness towards us. So the focus on verses 1 to 3 in Ephesians 2 is on our sin, our guilt, our nature, our destruction. Right? It's pretty uh, sad. It's pretty depressing when you read those first three verses. You're like, man, this is who I was, and, and this is what I was after, and these are terrible things, and I was opposed to God, and I was set out for death and destruction. And then we get to verses 4 to 7, and Paul moves the focus not to us, but to God and to grace and to Jesus. We don't really come back into the picture until the last three verses. Let's look at those real quick, beginning in verse 8. Verse 8, Paul says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You and I have been saved by grace through faith. But before you start thinking that it's your great faith that saves you, you need to think again. Author and pastor Kevin DeYoung tells of the faith it takes to take the first step out onto a frozen Lake Michigan. But as he tells the story, he goes on to say that it isn't faith that keeps you from falling into the freezing waters on Lake Michigan. It's the thickness of the ice. It isn't your faith that keeps you standing. It's the foundation that you're standing on. In the same way, it is not our faith that saves us. It is the confidence we have in the work of Jesus that saves us. That confidence, we call it faith, is a gift from God. Our ability to trust the work of Jesus, to trust the saving power of grace, to trust the promises of God and the hope of heaven, all of that is a gift to us from our Father. If we were saved by our faith, then salvation would be in our hand. And it's not. You will not get to heaven and say, my faith saved me. That isn't going to get you in. There is no accomplishment that you could attain in this life that would grant you access to eternal life. There are no works that get us to heaven. There is no job that you can do, not even preacher. There's no gift that you can give, no service you can render that forces God's hand in salvation. You and I are saved by grace through Jesus' sacrifice when we place our trust in that sacrifice and grace. Now this is a foundational lesson if you're going to change your spiritual thinking or behavior in 2020. It's not about you. It's about him. He knows our history. He has been our help. He is our hope. 
But verse 10 says that we are his handiwork. Look at verse 10 again. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have to understand this progression, I think, or we'll get all kinds of messed up in our spiritual journey. See, it starts with God. He created us. He formed us in the womb. He knit us together. He gave us life. And then scripture says that he created or he recreated us in Jesus. When we trust the sacrifice of Jesus, we're made new. Paul says in Romans 6 that in baptism, the physical, uh, first physical act of obedience for a believer in Jesus, that in that act, we're made a new creation. The old goes away and the new comes. It's like we go through the washing machine, spiritual washing machine. And those first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, the gratifying the sinful nature and the deserving death and, 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 um, and our sins and transgressions, it's like all of that is washed away. And we come out of the water a new creation. But he doesn't just recreate us. Paul says in verse 10 that he creates us to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So, listen, you and I, here's the point, you and I have been saved to good works, not by good works. There's nothing that we can do that gets us to heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation and eternal life. Look, you're not going to get to heaven. <coughs> Let's just say for a minute and this is totally false and has no foundation in the Bible at all. But just because this is how we talk about it, let's just have some fun for a second. And say, when you get to heaven, there's Peter at the pearly gates. Okay, it's not going to happen. It's not biblical. It's not in there. It isn't, it, that, like, Peter isn't the one that makes that decision, okay? But let's just say we get to heaven and we're there and we're trying to get in. You are not going to get into heaven by saying, I believe, let me in. That's not going to get you. But you know why? Because the focus is on me. I believe. My faith. Look, I believe. Let me in. You can't get to heaven and say, I was baptized. Let me in. You can't get to heaven and say, I repented. I confessed. I gave. I served. I worshiped. I helped. I prayed. Let me in. You only get to heaven by God's grace through faith in what Jesus already did. And we may take that first step in faith. But it's the reality, the foundation that Jesus came and lived and died and lives again that sustains us, that holds us, that keeps us up. And so when we get to heaven, it's not going to be about us, it's going to be about him. And when we get there, we're going to say, I know Jesus, and that's how we're going to get in. If last year left you spiritually worn out, if you dreaded starting a new Bible reading plan this year, if, you're, if your prayer time um, or your cheerfulness in giving or your desire to serve left with 2019. You may have been trying to earn a gift that you've already been given. Sometimes in the church we get burned out serving. We get tired of doing these things and we get bored or whatever we call it. And slowly, slowly, slowly we, we like, well... So we stop coming to church a little bit. Maybe we stop giving. We stop serving. And little by little, we fall farther and farther away. And it may just be because we're tired of trying to earn a gift. 
we've already been given. Loving God and loving others doesn't get you to heaven. They just are earthly expressions of our spiritual experience. We don't do them to get grace in Jesus. We do them because we've already got grace in Jesus. We don't serve and and love and, and give and help to earn the grace of God. We do those things because we've already received the grace of God. There is no work we are to do that gains us salvation, but God prepared good works for us to do through the power of the Holy Spirit after our salvation. Again, go through the progression in in those first seven verses. This is how you used to be, but God, God saved us. God raised us up. God put us on the same level as Jesus. It was his grace that saves us and redeems us. It was Jesus that all of that stuff comes through. It's all about God. God prepared good works for you after salvation as an expression of your love for him. Not before salvation because he knew it would lead us to try and blackmail our way into heaven. And we'd get there and go, God, look what I did. I served, I gave, I loved, I whatever. Because like none of those things are going to get you there. What gets you there is my son and the grace extended through him and my incredible love for you. What would change in your spiritual life this year if you began to see your love for God and others as expressions of your love for God rather than trying to entice him to bless you because of your works? And here's how it goes. In, in our prayer time, if, if, if we're saying, God, I went to church this week, how are you going to bless me? God, I gave some money this week, how are you going to bless me? God, I served a little bit this week, how are you going to bless me? God, I'm waiting for you to do these things because the list of things I'm doing for you is piling up. If that's how we approach God, we've put the works that are supposed to come after that we've been prepared to do, we've put them before This year, we need to see our salvation as a gift we've been given, not as a reward we're trying to earn. So read the Bible as a means to know God more and look for ways to follow him more closely and to bless others. Not so that you can check some spiritual box on your to-do list and God will bless you and be happy with you. This year, pray as a conversation with a father who loves you and wants to see you succeed while avoiding sin's pitfalls. Instead of praying, saying, God, do you remember that I did this and now where are you? This year, serve as a way to show others the love God has already shown you. And give as though you really trust the things that he's promised. Look, if you try to continue to try and earn the salvation that you've already received. You're going to wear yourself out trying to gain something that you've already got. 2020 vision is about seeing things clearly. You and and I, we were dead in our sins when God, through his grace, made us alive in his son Jesus. And so we've got to stop 
working for our salvation and start serving from our salvation in the new year. Reading and praying and serving and giving and and loving God and loving others as an expression of the grace and the love and the salvation that we've received, not as a way to try and earn those things from God. It is only because of God's grace that we have life and that we're able to order that life around Jesus. So let's make 2020 the year that we look more like Jesus so that more people can find real life in Him. Add God to your plans and your goals for this new year, not as a means to try and earn something from Him, but as a way to express your thanks and gratitude to Him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for all that you have done, the incredible love that you show us, the grace that you have have given us in Jesus, that he would come to this earth and die for our sins so that we could have the hope of eternal life with you. God, I pray as believers that we would never put the cart before the horse. We would never try to to serve or or to love or to give as a way to earn something from you, but that those things would come as expressions of what you've already done for us, the grace you've already given us in your son Jesus. God, we receive that grace today and and, and we desire to walk in that in the new year. We might love you more and love others better because you saved us. You took us out of our sins and our transgressions, the way that we used to live when we followed the the evil desires and cravings and thoughts of of our sinful nature. We were objects of your wrath, but you saved us from that. And you set us on a place equal with Jesus. You pour out your grace on us and you give us so much. God, this year, this year would we love you in new and better ways. Would we see you more clearly and would we stop trying to earn our salvation? And instead, would we just walk in that salvation? Would we love you? And would the things that we do, the desires of our hearts and the thoughts in our minds, would they be expressions of the grace that you've already given us? God, this year, help us to follow you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Will you go?